Well, I do appreciate the uh, invitation by the elders here and also by Brother Tony. Uh, he contacted me about a month ago via email and asked if I would be willing to, to come out. And, uh, of course, I was more than uh, eager to uh, take on that assignment. When Brother Leonard started saying that we had a man of great intelligence, I thought, well, Tony changed his mind. And so they've got somebody else, and I'll just sit here and I'll listen to somebody who's smart and intelligent. And so uh, he miscued, Leonard miscued on that one. But I appreciate those kind words. And, uh, as he mentioned, uh, I'm married to Alicia Parsley now, driver. Many of you know her. Uh, she is the daughter of Mike and Sharon Driver. Uh, they attended here for many years, and uh, we're back home now at Oak Grove. Uh, I preached about two years at Centertown, and uh, so I'm entering my third year. So I'm new to this, so you'll just have to bear with me. Uh, I'm hoping that tonight what we'll do is we'll have a discussion, uh, not necessarily a lecture, not necessarily a sermon per se. I have a friend that I went to school with. Uh, she asked me when I came in, she said, are you here to preach? I said, no, just want to teach. And so I would love to have feedback. Uh, and what we'll do, we'll ask for some volunteers to read. Uh, you don't have to. I won't make you. You don't have to worry about that. But if you have questions, uh, feel free to ask those. I uh, can't say that I'll guarantee an answer, but we have the Bible in front of us, and I encourage you to open your Bibles uh, and study with us. Of course, as you know, the theme of this week is great events that took place in Jerusalem. In my opinion, one of the most, the greatest, most important events that ever took place in Jerusalem would be that of the establishment of the church. And so that's what we want to look at tonight. Can anyone tell me where the establishment of the church is found in Scripture? Acts chapter 2. So if you'd like to open your Bibles there, uh, we'll put it in some context by looking at Acts chapter 1. Uh, and also Acts chapter 2 uh, is what our mission is here tonight, uh, the topic that I selected. And there are many other good uh, events that we can study. And, and we may not get everywhere in Acts chapter 2 that I would like, uh, but that's perfectly fine. Uh, I have notes up here that I'm prepared with, but if you have discussions, if you have questions, then by all means uh, feel free. Because if I only get through page 1 or 2, I'm fine with that. I do not have to complete my notes. Uh, the point is for us to all to learn from God's Word together. Now, we have the book of Acts. That is the fifth book in the New Testament. How is Acts different than all the other books? Does anybody know? At least one way it's different than some of the other books. The books that precede it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we often refer to them as the what accounts? Gospel accounts. The main character there is Jesus. Uh, of course, the main character uh, precedes with Acts, with Jesus. Uh, he's a focal point in all the New Testament. But Acts differs from that because it's not a, a handwritten account uh, by all the works of Jesus. This is those things that precede Jesus. Uh, oftentimes people will say it's a book of history. Uh, so that right there is one major distinction in the book of Acts and all the other ones. Now, you have the, uh, the gospel accounts. We have a uh, book of history. Uh, and then Paul. What, what do we often call the books that Paul wrote? Okay, the epistles. They're letters. And so Acts will differ from that in that it's not a letter to a particular congregation. It's just the history of the establishment of the church. Before we get into our lesson there in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, I'd like to share with you a list of about 13 things that George Dehoff 
penned in his book. It's entitled Acts, Key to the New Testament. And they're 13 first. And I don't know if many of you take notes, but I would jot these down. Uh, or if you have electronic device, maybe make a note of this, because I found it interesting. Uh, some of these I had thought of before, and some of these I had not. Uh, but this comes from George Dehoff's book. Uh, we first start out with the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is the first time in the New Testament that we see the Holy Spirit coming onto a group of people. It's the establishment of the church, so that's the second first in the book of Acts. It's the first gospel sermon, Acts chapter 2. Now, some people may debate that and say, well, we had Jesus preaching a sermon on the mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, but this is the first gospel sermon after the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Uh, we have the first baptism in the name of Christ. Uh, before Acts, we had a baptism, but whose baptism is that attributed to? John, John the Baptist. So we have baptisms in the gospel accounts, but this is the baptism, Acts 2.38, in the name of Jesus Christ. So that's significant. Uh, Filthy said this is the first worship in the New Testament. It's the first trouble in the church, Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 6, we have the first deacon selected. Oftentimes, when you think in Acts chapter 6 of those deacons, what one name stands out in your mind? Stephen. So we have the first uh, Christian martyr there. Uh, that's in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 8, the first evangelist. Now, this is one that I scratched my head on. I said, now, who is he referring to? Because I wanted to do it open brain. But who is the evangelist in Acts chapter 8? Philip. Philip is the first Christian evangelist that differs a little bit from a preacher or minister because we minister types, we're kind of located in local work. Uh, but you'll have Paul, you'll have Philip, went different areas, different places teaching. And so I think that's where Brother Dehoff got the first evangelist. Uh, chapter 10 and 11, very significant. Uh, Cornelius' household. What is significant about Cornelius? First Gentile baptism. So that's another first. Uh, that brings us down to number 11 on our list. It's First Gentile Church, uh, chapter 11, First Missionary Journey, chapter 13. Of course, that had to be referencing to Paul there. And then last but not finally, the first church in Europe. Uh, that was one in Acts chapter 16 that I wasn't too familiar with. So I thought I would share that with you. And you could take these on your own time, on your own accord, and study these things and look at these things. Because some of these things, Acts chapter 2, we're very familiar with. Uh, if you've had a Bible study uh, with a person of a denominational belief or a non-Christian, someone who's never went to church and never uh, even thought about the Bible and things of that nature, uh, we've probably used Acts 2.38. So we're very familiar with Acts chapter 2. And hopefully tonight... We'll look at it in maybe a different lens or a different view, uh, and we can learn some things from that. But before we get in Acts chapter 2, let's get here in Acts chapter 1. And what I like to do oftentimes is read a small section uh, and then have discussion, have make applications, ask whatever questions we can from that small, because if we read all of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2, then we just kind of lose that. Uh, so do we have a volunteer to read the first three verses in Acts chapter 1? Does anybody? You can raise your hand or you can just start reading. It don't matter. Okay, thank you.
Are you in Acts chapter 1? I may have not specified that. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. Acts chapter 1, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. Thank you for that. Now, in, we see in verse 1 who what I call the writer of Acts is. Who is the writer of the book of Acts? Luke. How do we know that? By the simple phrase, the former account. So we go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, John, uh, then we see Acts there. Uh, so this former account, so Luke is talking about the letter that he had already wrote, the gospel account. Is it would it be true to say that Luke is the writer slash author of the book of Acts? Could we say that? Or is there another higher being that authored the book of Acts? God, right? Uh, Paul will later tell us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So I would call Luke the writer, while as God is the author. Uh, and that's an important part to always keep in mind, that these are the inspired words from God. Uh, so this former account uh, in verse 1 refers to the Gospel of Luke. We see here in verse 3 that Jesus taught for 40 days uh, after his resurrection, but uh, before his ascension. He was teaching things pertaining to the kingdom. Uh, The kingdom is another way of just saying church. Uh, Sometimes in the New Testament, kingdom of heaven may refer to heaven, but more oftentimes than not, as you study, it will refer to the body of Christ, uh, which is the church of Christ. He had already told Peter back in Matthew 16, 18, that he would build his church. Uh, what was the foundation of the church which Christ would later build? Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the confession. If you go back and you look at that, if you study it uh, in the Greek and in the Hebrew, uh, the word Peter actually means rock. Uh, There is a huge denominational teaching that says, oh, well, Christ is saying Peter... You're the rock, and I'm going to build my church on you. And guess what they do? They establish a pope system. And so you know which denominational uh, system we're talking about there. That's not true. It's basically two different rocks. Peter, you're a rock, and on your rock, your confession that you just made that I'm the Son of Man, I am the Christ, I will build my church. The gates of Hades, we often call hell. Hades just simply means the afterlife, the the world of the dead. Uh, It would not be able to stop the church. Jesus also promised to give Peter the keys of the kingdom. I think that's significant. Uh, We're going to see Peter here in Acts chapter 2 open up the doors, open up the gates uh, to the kingdom there. So let's pick up here. Do we have a volunteer in Acts chapter 1 reading verses 4 through 8 for us? Okay, yes, sir.
Okay, very good. Thank you for that. Who is Jesus speaking to in these verses? The apostles. Friends, that is so important for us as Christians to know. Uh, just recently, within the past two months or so, I've been involved uh, in a study with a Mennonite gentleman. Uh, this is my first time ever going into the Mennonite faith and trying to see what they think. They look at verse 5. It's in the, the, the letters are read. So this is Christ speaking to us. And it says there, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So they take that and they say, Water has nothing to do with my salvation uh, because Jesus says I'm going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so it was my task then, uh, and I had not up to that time, I'll be honest with you, being 31 years old, I have not spent a lot of time in Acts chapter 1 because growing up in the church, we go right to Acts chapter 2, uh, being baptized, Acts 2.38. And so we just kind of look at that. But going back to Acts chapter 1, we have to know who Jesus is talking to, who Jesus promises the Holy Spirit baptism to. Now, if we need proof of this, you look here with me at verse 2. You look at verse 3. You look at verse 13 especially, and without a shadow of a doubt, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is talking solely to the apostles. You don't see anybody else mentioned until after verse 14 and following. Then the apostles go, they meet some women there, and then a little bit later on, we have 120 disciples uh, gathered together. So this Mennonite gentleman, he says, Well, well Brandon, I, I'm baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, well, how do you know that? Well, it's just a feeling that comes over me, and I just know He just grabs a hold of me, and He baptizes me. And I say, well, find that in Scripture. They go to Acts chapter 1. And I say, but look here in verse 4, and we can assume here that it says Jesus, Jesus being assembled together with them. The them refers back to the apostles mentioned there in verse 2 and 3. And then you go down there to verse 13, it names every one of them by name there. Uh, starting Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. It's the apostles and the apostles only who was promised to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Friends, that is so important and significant as background knowledge moving into Acts chapter 2. This same Mennonite gentleman, I, I commend him. Uh, the fact that he's very zealous, he's very religious, although I contend that religious does not always equate righteousness. Uh, he's very firm in his beliefs. But the fact that he contends that there's a water baptism, a spiritual baptism, he'll say after you're saved, then you go and you baptize, baptize in water. But friends, that's two different ones. And if we had time, we could look at the Ephesian letter. And there it's the chapter of unity. There's one Lord, there's one faith. In verse 5 of Ephesians chapter 4, there's one baptism. So if a person comes to you and says, well, there's a Holy Spirit baptism, there's a water baptism, there's two distinct, that's false doctrine. And we, as God's children, have to combat that using the Bible. If we keep Acts chapter 1 in the proper context, as we should, we see that it's only the apostles. Now in, Acts chapter, in verse 5, rather, Acts chapter 1 verse 5, Christ there commands the apostles not to depart from Jerusalem, while they wait for the promise of the Father. That's going to be in the New King James, which I'm reading from. Promise is capitalized. That's a proper noun. That's in reference to the Holy Spirit. He's saying, wait in the city until you receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, in verse 8, he clearly tells them that they will receive power from the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, we also, as we just read verse 8 just a moment ago, we see the execution of the Great Commission is going to be put into action. Uh, Jesus says there in, in Mark's account, go into all the world, making disciples of all creatures, baptizing them in my name. And there we see that it's going to start there as witnesses in Jerusalem. And then verse 8 said, then you'll move into Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So that's the execution. That's the plan of how to execute the Great Commission. They wait and they pray. Uh, as they're waiting, they're praying. And we'll see here in Acts uh, chapter 1 that they select Matthias as the twelfth apostle. But let me ask you this. At the time that Jesus is speaking to them in these first eight verses, are they in Jerusalem at that point? So they wait in Jerusalem, so we would assume no. If you look at verse 12, they return to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Uh, and so that's where they receive these things. Uh, the Mount of Olives was close to Jerusalem, so they descend the mount, they go into Jerusalem, and there they wait. That will bring us here in our study tonight to Acts chapter 2. If you will, read with me here uh, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Pentecost was one of three annual feasts uh, they held yearly that would have brought a great number of Jews into Jerusalem. Uh, so if Pentecost is one, does anybody know the other two? Okay, Tabernacles, also known as Feast of Weeks, Feast of Harvest. That would all be one of them. Okay, what's the other? Passover. What I have read in preparation for this, uh, the author of that commentary said that Pentecost... Uh, of course, it came 50 days after Passover. This would have been the one that more Jews would have been at. Uh, and if you look there with me in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, we'll notice this in just a, a minute here. Uh, they were Jews from every uh, nation, from every country, from the known world at that time, residing or dwelling in. does not necessarily mean they were living there permanently. But they had come to dwell there momentarily, temporarily, during the Feast of uh, Pentecost. With here, we see that there is a... How did the Holy Spirit come? Let me ask you that question. What we read there in the first four verses, the Holy Spirit comes, falls upon them. How do we know that the Holy Spirit is present? They heard it. That is very important for us. And that, you might say, well, that's why I spend time on this. Uh, the Bible says there is a sound as a rushing wind. It does not necessarily mean some great tornado came through and it was with that power. It could have been. But what the Bible leaves us is there was a sound. Uh, friends, a lot of times in the book of Revelation, they'll say, well, angels are, are going to blow trumpets and this, that, and the other, and we should have musical instruments. If you go and you read the Revelation account, it says, I heard a voice as of rushing mighty waters. I heard a, vo uh, a voice, a booming voice, as it was as a trumpet. doesn't necessarily mean that it was a trumpet. Just like here in Acts chapter 2, doesn't necessarily mean there was some tornado or some great wind, just a sound as a great mighty rushing wind. Also it says in verse 3, they had tongues as of fire. does not mean that a literal fireball set on their head. does not mean that. Uh, but it's just giving us an illustration. Verse 4 in Acts chapter 2 clearly states that the apostles 
are filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit gives them the ability to speak in tongues. How does this differ, their miraculous ability in speaking in tongues, how does this differ uh, from supposed accounts today? That could be understood. It was a dialect, it was a language that the people here, uh, as we read through this, uh, we'll see that the people could actually come together, and it's almost, uh, if I can use this illustration, if a person uh, who's been born and raised in America has no formal education in any foreign language, but it miraculously speaks German and, and Spanish and, and Chinese and Japanese, and they're able to do that. That would be the same thing here. Today's so-called speaking in tongues is nothing more than gibberish. Uh, there's no interpreters. Uh, there's nobody that understands them. Uh, and so that is something that we can use to combat false doctrine because oftentimes when you sit down with these very sincere people and you ask, do you know what you're saying? Well, no, but the Holy Spirit says, give me something to say and I'm over here and I'm... Blah, 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 blah. It's gibberish. It's all it is. Uh, this is a very clear sign uh, that the other people could understand them. So that's important to keep in mind. Would somebody like to read with us uh, verses 5 through 13 for Any volunteers? Okay, yes, sir. Thank you for that. Now you see there in verse 5, again, as we stated before, there were Jews dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men who had come on a long journey to come and worship uh, as, the, as the custom was at that time uh, from every nation under heaven. You look there at verse 6. This proves without a shadow of a doubt that the people assembled at this occasion could understand the apostles speaking in tongues. This is something very important, going back to Acts chapter 1 and our conversation there uh, about the fact that only the apostles received the gift of the Holy Spirit. You notice uh, in verse 7, only the apostles are able to speak in tongues. Now how do we know that, according to verse 7? How do we know that it's only the apostles? Galileans, yes. All the, the apostles were from Galilee. And so if you know a little bit of history there, you can put the puzzle pieces together and you can say, okay, Acts chapter 1, uh, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit baptism only to the apostles. In Acts chapter 2, none of these other 120 disciples, to our knowledge, 
None of these other uh, visitors, these Jewish visitors from these other regions all over, uh, from o- over the world, none of these are speaking in tongues. The Bible only tells us that those men of Galilee, those apostles handpicked by Jesus, are the only ones able to speak in tongues. Uh, what's the crowd's response to this? I'm sorry. They're amazed. Uh, Verse 6 says they're confused. Verse 12 says they're amazed and they're perplexed. Uh, Were they all believers? No. Verse 13 tells us what? Others mocked. That blows me away. The fact that today we have good, sound men, such as Brother Tony and Brother Steve, as well as others, that will take God's sword, spiritual sword, will open it up, uh, in one-on-one conversations or from the pulpit and say these are the words of God and people still mock. The fact, this is nothing new, friends, the establishment of the church, they are apostles with the gift of the Holy Spirit being able to speak in foreign languages and people mocked. That's almost repulsive. It, it amazes me that people are, can be so hard-hearted and hard-headed, they are not willing to look at this. Uh, but even there, on the day of Pentecost, without, with all these miraculous things taking place, they still mocked. Uh, now, beginning here at verse 14 and following, we have Peter's sermon. Uh, and I would like for us to look at this. Uh, and for sake of time, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll read these. Uh, H. Leo Bowles, in his commentary, suggests that Peter's sermon can be divided into three parts. Uh, the first part takes place here beginning at verse 14 to about 21. Uh, so we'll read that together. It says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. Uh, I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm afraid that verse 21 can lead a lot of people uh, down the road of false doctrine. Well, I'll just believe, I'll just call on the name of the Lord. They don't understand that having faith means you're obeying. Calling means you're going to accept whatever God requires of us uh, as human beings uh, who want to be His children. That's what it means to call on the name of the Lord. I'm going to do whatever God tells me, therefore I'll do whatever Christ tells me to do. But let's look at a few applications here. Peter begins his sermon, the first gospel sermon here, verse 14, uh, by reciting a prophecy from Joel. The Jews at this time would have understood that this is a foretelling, uh, at this time that Joel was speaking, in Old Testament times, this would have been a foretelling of the coming Messiah. Uh, And so Peter is using this. The only problem here is this Jewish audience does not realize at this point that the Messiah and Jesus were one and the same. Uh, They did not understand that. Had they have done that, there would have been way more than 3,000 souls added to the Lord's body on that day. The Jews at this time, they are living in the last days. It mentions here in this prophecy that in the last days, I'm going to do all these wonderful things. 
Uh, and this is the time in Acts chapter 2 uh, that they are living in. All of this uh, prophecy from Joel would have been fulfilled with Christ's crucifixion uh, there on the cross. Now, let's move into the second part of the sermon, beginning here at verse 22. Uh, so we see the first part is a prophecy of Joel. Uh, it is an explanation of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Peter is trying to say, we're living in the last days. You have seen all of this stuff been fulfilled. Now he's going to move into part 2. There on verse uh, 22 and following. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. So here we see this second part. Uh, and it's not a prophecy from Joel, it's a prophecy from David. And so two sections, two segments, two Old Testament prophecies that Peter has used thus far. We see uh, here in verse 22 that Jesus could prove without a shadow of a doubt that He is the Lord by the miracles and wonders and signs that uh, He performed. Some contend that the church was a secondary thought. It was a plan B. Uh, since the people would not accept Jesus as some earthly king, they rejected Him, uh, then God said, well, I'll just establish a church. Friends, that could not be further from the truth. Notice there verse 23, it says, Him, that's Christ, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. God knew before uh, Genesis 1-1, before the beginning of time as we know it, that He would send Christ. Uh, the church had always been in the plan and heart and mind of God. Uh, it had always been a part of His divine uh, solution to save us from our sins. And so we see in this second part uh, a description of the Lord. He's trying His best to convince them that this Jesus, this man of Nazareth, uh, so if there's any shadow of a doubt, well, what, what Jesus is he talking about? Uh, the Jesus that lives in Smithville, the Jesus that lives in McMinnville, which one exactly is he talking about? This Jesus of Nazareth. So without a shadow of a doubt, uh, they would have known which one he was talking about. And so he makes, again, a reference to uh, another Old Testament prophecy by David. Now let's look at the third part here uh, of his sermon, beginning there at verse 29. Verse 29 says, Men and brethren, let us speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received... From the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. David makes it very clear here. Uh, that, uh, or Peter rather, makes it very clear here that David was speaking about Christ. Uh, 
Uh, David is not speaking of himself, but he's referring to, he's making reference here to Christ. Peter gives very strong evidence that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And so that's the third part here, uh, the Messiahship of Christ. He's already explained the outpouring of, of the prophecy of Joel, of the Holy Spirit there. He, in the second part, he explained how Jesus is Lord. Now he's talking about how Jesus is the Messiah. In verse 36, Peter again accuses the Jews of murder. If you remember back there in verse 23 that we read, uh, he said that you have taken and you have crucified and you have put to death. There in verse 36, to paraphrase it, he's basically telling these thousands of Jews, you're all guilty of murder in the first degree. You killed Christ. Now, friends, if a person stood in that pulpit behind us and they pointed the finger at you and said, you're all murderers, you're all guilty, what do you think generally the response would be? I think I'd be angry. If somebody came up to me who I didn't really know and said, Brandon, you're, you're a murderer, you're a killer, you need to do something about it, you're going to be lost in hell. I think I would be upset. What was their response? They're pricked in the heart. Verse 37, this is the New King James, says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The King James says they were pricked in the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Friends, if you ever get a one-on-one Bible study and you open the Scriptures and that person, that precious soul, looks you in the eye and says, Okay, I I believe you. And I've got to make something right. What do I need to do? What's Peter's response there in Acts 2.38? First, repent, be baptized, and then what happens then? Repent, be baptized for remission of sins, and you shall receive something. Gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've grown up a lot of my life thinking every person in the Lord's church understands Acts 2.38 the same way that I do. Uh, There are two strong contentions in the brotherhood today. I'm not talking about in the world. I'm talking about in the brotherhood and the churches of Christ. Uh, and I want to share these with you very briefly. Uh, there is debate as to what this gift of the Holy Spirit is. Some believe it's a miraculous gift. Uh, when Peter says you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that means you receive power to speak in tongues and prophesy and things like that. But let me ask you this. This, if that was the case, that was only given by the laying hands of, of the apostles. When, the, when you were baptized, uh, there's proof in Acts chapter 8, people were baptized and had not yet received this miraculous gift. Uh, in Acts chapter 19, the people who had been baptized at Ephesus, Paul had to lay his hands on them. They had to rebaptize them in the name of Christ and lay his hands on them. Acts 19 verse 6, before they got the Holy Spirit. I believe, me personally, and I, I wouldn't quote this, I'm not saying, well, this is Bible, this is Brandon Parsons' interpretation of it, take it or leave it. I believe the gift of the Holy Spirit is eternal life. Uh, And the reason why, you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 39, Peter is saying this promise is to you, to your children, and to all who are far off, as many as our Lord God will call. Well, friends, there's no end of that promise. So I believe Acts 2, 39 extends to us today in 2015. However, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we don't have miraculous gifts. I cannot speak with tongues. I cannot raise people from the dead. Uh, I've been baptized uh, for the right reason, uh, to follow Christ's example for remission of my sins because I want to make heaven my home. I, I was baptized for those reasons. 
but I did not receive any miraculous gift. Uh, so there's a lot of strong contention in the brotherhood. Some believe that it's miraculous gifts. I, on the other hand, believe that it is eternal life. It is the gift of salvation for my sins, is what I believe. Now, with that conclusion, and we're quickly running out of time, uh, Brother Leonard, what time do we conclude? Now. Okay. If he had a shepherd hook, he'd be like really off here, so... I'm one of those long-winded preachers. So we didn't get as far as what I would like to, but beginning there at verse 40, I'll just make this quick application. Uh, The sermon is over, per se, but then we see that he continued to exhort them, to encourage them, to uplift them. Uh, And then we'll maybe point this out in the invitation, Lord willing. Uh, They continued steadfastly. They continued daily in the apostles' doctrine. Uh, And so we see that baptism was not the end-all, be-all, but yet that was the beginning. If you will, let's go to God in prayer. Our most gracious, divine, heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, the church that meets here at Bobby Branch, for all the work that they have done for this vacation Bible school. We're thankful for Brother Tony and Brother Steve, for the deacons, for the elders, for all the teachers, for all the brothers and sisters who have made this event this week possible. Father, we pray that as we have opened your word and studied it tonight, we pray that everything that is said and everything that has been discussed in this class and all the other classes has been well-pleasing in thy sight. Father, thank you for blessing us with all physical, with all material, with all spiritual blessings. Father, we know that all these blessings are found in Christ. Father, we pray that if there are any here tonight uh, that are not in the body of Christ or have not remained faithful, that in just a few moments when we reassemble here uh, and we extend the invitation, we pray that at least maybe just one precious soul will put Christ on in baptism. Father, we thank you for all the many blessings you bless us with. Please forgive us of our sins. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all the discussion. Thank you.